Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. A grand jury indicts former President Trump over hush money payments. This is part of the Manhattan District Attorney's investigation into Trump. What we know so far. Nine soldiers were killed when two Black Hawk helicopters crashed in Kentucky last night. One witness says it appeared they were flying fairly close to each other. A train carrying hazardous materials derails in Minnesota. Ethanol released into the air caught fire. And in Nashville, hundreds of protesters gathered at the Tennessee Capitol today calling for stricter gun control laws. Investigating alleged weaponization of the federal government. Emotions running high at hearing today with both parties accusing the other of abuse of power. Former President Trump has been indicted. The grand jury in the Manhattan District Attorney's probe was reportedly taking a month-long break from meeting, but now they've formally accused Trump of paying hush money. Trump is accused of paying $130,000 of hush money to adult film actress Stormy Daniels before the 2016 election. This comes after the Manhattan District Attorney's Office investigated the Trump Organization's business records. Trump's then-lawyer Michael Cohen said he paid Daniels to keep her quiet about an alleged sexual encounter with Trump in 2006. Trump denies involvement in payment. He also denies the affair. The indictment today makes Trump the first former U.S. president to be indicted of a crime. Bragg's case against Trump has been criticized by some legal experts. If normal procedures are followed, prosecutors are expected to next negotiate Trump's voluntary surrender at the district attorney's office in Lower Manhattan. Trump's lawyer has previously said the former president would voluntarily surrender if he was indicted. And nine soldiers were killed last night when two Black Hawk helicopters crashed in Kentucky. One witness says it appeared they were flying kind of close to one another. An aircraft safety team is now investigating the crash. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. I would like to express our deepest sympathies to the families of our fallen soldiers. Nine soldiers with the 101st Airborne Division were killed Wednesday night when two Black Hawk helicopters crashed, leaving no survivors. Five soldiers were in one helicopter and four were in the other when they were conducting a nighttime training exercise in Kentucky, according to Army officials. General John Lubis, deputy commander of operations for the 101st Airborne Division, addressed the situation at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, where all of the fallen soldiers were stationed. The Army has deployed an aircraft safety team from Fort Rucker, Alabama, who will arrive later today and will immediately initiate an investigation to help us understand what caused this crash in order to prevent like this from happening again. He mentioned that the Black Hawk helicopters have something similar to the black boxes in passenger aircraft and that they're hoping it will provide more information to better understand exactly what happened. He also said the helicopter crews were wearing night vision goggles during the training exercise. A 1989 study on night vision goggles posted on the National Institutes of Health website shows that depth perception after prolonged usage of night vision goggles was not affected. However, there was a misalignment between the two eyes when using night vision goggles on 12 of the 24 tested missions. A witness who lives about a mile away from where the crash occurred, Nick Tomaszewski, said he saw two helicopters flying, quote, kind of close together moments before they crashed in Trick County, Kentucky. 
The helicopters came down in a field and there were no casualties on the ground. General Pat Ryder, the Pentagon press secretary, says the U.S. military, quote, takes safety very, very seriously. This will be one of those things that we're just going to always have to work at uh, and just never be satisfied with. And so we're obviously committed to doing that because at the end of the day, it's about ensuring that we have U.S. service members who are ready to go wherever we need them to go, when we need them to go there, to do the important work that we're asking them to do on behalf of our nation. Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir also gave his condolences to the victims' families and added this. We're going to do what we always do. We're going to wrap our arms around these families. And we're going to be there with them, not just for the days, but the weeks and the months and the years to come. My faith teaches me that while the body is mortal, the soul is eternal, and we will see them again. Jason Perry, NTD News. Another der major derailment in the Midwest. A train carrying highly flammable ethanol derailed in Minnesota early this morning, causing a temporary evacuation of local residents. A BNSF freight train with roughly 40 cars derailed on Thursday at 1 a.m. in Raymond, Minnesota, a town of around 800. 14 of the cars were carrying highly flammable ethanol. Four of the cars ruptured and caught fire when the ethanol was released. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg spoke on the incident. This is happening in a community, a small community about 100 miles west of Minneapolis. Been in touch with the governor. Uh, we have FRA personnel on the ground. Uh, EPA is headed there as well, given the hazardous material situation. Local authorities ordered residents living within a half mile of the derailment to evacuate. By late morning, the evacuation order was lifted and residents were allowed to return home. This comes as the nation deals with a series of major train derailments in recent months, some involving toxic chemicals. We're taking additional actions at the FRA uh, and with the authorities and powers that we do have, but we're calling on Congress to do more. There's bipartisan legislation in the Senate that would give us more tools to hold the freight railroads accountable uh, for their safety practices. Minnesota Governor Tim Waltz visited the derailment site in the morning and pledged full support. He said there were no reported injuries and no exposures to toxic metal. He also told residents that while the train cars burn, there won't be an explosion. BNSF Railway says the company takes full accountability and will finish the cleanup process. The company also said there's no impact to air or water quality. The cause of the crash is under investigation. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Hundreds of protesters gathered at the Tennessee Capitol today calling for tighter gun control laws after the Nashville shooting three days ago. As the state's Republican majority legislature entered the building for the first time since the shooting, school children, teens and parents chanted, Save Our Children. Protesters filled hallways between the Senate and House chambers, with some filling the Senate gallery. Others gathered outside. Most protesters were removed from the gallery after some began yelling, children are dead. More yelling from two Democratic lawmakers caused a temporary shutdown. The protests come after a Wednesday night candlelight vigil in Nashville, which both Republican and Democrat lawmakers attended, along with First Lady Jill Biden. And in an apparent about face, President Biden says he will sign a bill to end the COVID-19 emergency if it reaches his desk. But some Democrats say the administration should have done a better job of keeping them informed along the way. NTD's Iris Tao has more. 
President Biden will not veto a GOP-led resolution that will end the COVID-19 national emergency a month earlier than scheduled. That's according to the White House, which told media outlets that Biden still strongly opposes the resolution, but if this bill comes to his desk, he will sign it. And today, the press secretary defending that about-face. Uh, the bill that just passed would only lift the national emergency, which doesn't impact Title 42 or COVID authorities like uh, for testing and for treatments. We are in a different place and time than we were in January. The GOP-led bill to end the national emergency sooner passed the House in February and then passed the Senate just this Wednesday. Dozens of Senate Democrats joined Republicans in backing the measure after being told that Biden would not veto it. But back in January, Biden voiced opposition to the bill, insisting that a national emergency should be extended to May 11th to ensure an orderly transition. The latest change in stance, meanwhile, prompting House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to say this when signing the bill on Thursday. Okay, this is a very good lesson for everyone whenever they want to produce a bill, the president says he's going to be to it. He's going to learn to end up and sign it, and so congratulations. McCarthy is now calling on Biden to sign the bill immediately. But some Democrats are voicing frustration about the administration's change of stance on short notice. Congressman Dan Kildee tells Fox News that the White House lack of communication with House Democrats has been frustrating, adding that going forward, Democrats will need greater clarity out of the administration. And this marks the second time in the new Congress that such an unexpected shift happened. Just weeks ago, Biden announced he would not veto a GOP resolution to block changes to D.C.'s criminal code. And that, too, marked a reversal from his previous stance and caught some Democrats by surprise. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, Wet TD News. And what will be the effect of ending the COVID emergency? Earlier today, I spoke with Dr. Scott Atlas, former advisor to the White House Coronavirus Task Force and now senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, for his perspective. Dr. Scott Atlas, welcome to our show. Thanks for coming on again. Yeah, happy to be here. Now, the Senate voted yesterday to end the COVID national emergency a month sooner than planned. What's your take on the timing? Well, it's certainly not sooner than it should have been. Uh, we're talking about almost three years too late. Why is it that people don't talk about how Florida's been living normally for almost three years now? I mean, there is no public health emergency. There hasn't been one for a long time. And, you know, frankly, it points out uh, the need to define what an emergency is. An emergency, if we, if we want to remember, is a crisis situation it's a short term that requires emergency measures. And this is one of the big problems is public health emergency is really not defined in the United States uh, clearly at all. Uh, and I think this is a problem because that means it's unlimited and sort of ad hoc. It can be defined any way whoever's in power wants it to be. What do you think will be the effects of ending it? Well, the effect of ending it is, is uh, the biggest is a positive, and that is restoring some logic uh, into our governance and restoring some trust into the people, I hope, because it's it's just impossible to maintain a straight face and say there should be an extended emergency. The reason uh, that people are upset that it's ending, those who are upset, is because they've used it to increase and expand coverage for, say, Medicare Advantage programs, Medicaid eligibility, 
These are things that shouldn't be done with a, a so-called emergency measure for a crisis. That's obvious. Those are legislative agendas. Those things will end, and that's good because they should be forced to be legislated. We have a representative government that's supposed to handle things like government insurance coverage or whatever, if you have a government insurance plan. Uh, and then it, it really brings to fruition here uh, the finality of the fear, I think. In, in where I live in California, there's still people walking around. I mean, it's very sad to see somebody who's elected to have power, entrusted with power like Senator Sanders, wearing a mask on the floor for the vote. I mean, this is preposterous. Again, it, it undermines trust. So I, I think we need to uh, be very thankful that uh, we have some pressure from the public. It's a democracy. They're supposed to represent the public. And I think the overwhelming majority of rational people, and therefore the overwhelming majority of people, I hope, that are citizens of this country, know that this must end. There's one more point about ending the emergency. The prolongation of the emergency, the false prolongation, has justified emergency use authorizations. And that specifically, the most heinous of all, was in late 2022, approving an experimental drug, the vaccine, for young children under an emergency use authorization when there was no public health emergency by any stretch of the imagination. And so that emergency use authorization using an experimental drug on children who have very limited, minuscule risk of serious harm from the illness itself was an abuse of public uh, uh, government power. Uh, and really, this is an example of how we need to eliminate these false uh, justifications for these abuses of government power like EUA when there is no emergency. All right. Thank you so much. Dr. Scott Atlas, senior fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution and former advisor for the White House Coronavirus Task Force. We appreciate Thank it. You. Thank you. House Republicans are investigating how the Biden administration allegedly abused its power to suppress information about COVID-19. Meanwhile, House Democrats say it's actually their GOP counterparts who are weaponizing the government. Did the government pressure social media to censor Americans for saying things like, Natural immunity is real. Absolutely. Did the government pressure social media to censor Americans for saying things like gain-of-function research happened in that lab in China? Absolutely. The House Committee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government is probing a lawsuit by Louisiana and Missouri. The suit from May 2022 says the Biden administration colluded with social media giants Meta, Twitter, and YouTube to censor free speech in the name of combating so-called disinformation and misinformation. Missouri's former Attorney General Eric Schmidt was another witness. In his opening statement, he said Dr. Anthony Fauci knew that the Wuhan lab in China was conducting gain-of-function research. But he sought to discredit and suppress the theory that COVID-19 leaked from a lab to deflect blame and avoid potential responsibility for the pandemic. He and Louisiana's Attorney General left after their opening remarks. Some Democrats heavily criticized that because they couldn't examine the two. They're not here to understand that. You will be able to ask. They have scurried away with your complicity. They refused to defend. In a country of 330 million people, you couldn't find two people to defend their statements. That's pretty disgraceful. Allowing them to leave is not weaponization. I don't know what is, Mr. Chairman. Yeah, right. 
However, Jordan later pointed out that the witnesses aren't required to stay. Also, that Republicans similarly weren't able to examine witnesses at the January 6 hearings. The two parties also accused each other over New York's DA Alvin Bragg, who's currently investigating former President Trump. House Republicans are probing this investigation. Democrats at Thursday's hearing said that Republicans are demanding that District Attorney Bragg appear for a transcribed interview in a matter that is under criminal investigation. That is an abuse of the power of this body, of this committee, and that is the weaponization of Congress. Republicans say that Bragg's investigation into Trump is politically motivated. Reporting by Arian Pazdar, NTD News. Speaking of government weaponization, it now appears that the Justice Department discouraged U.S. Marshals from arresting protesters after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. This was in violation of laws against picketing the homes of judges. Republican Senator Katie Britt revealed an internal memo this week with instructions to the marshals. To speak with us about his concerns on this topic is Article 3 Project founder Mike Davis, with whom I spoke earlier today. Mike Davis, thanks for coming on. Welcome to our show. Thank you. Now, we know that the DOJ dissuaded U.S. Marshals from arresting protesters picketing the homes of Supreme Court justices, even though it's illegal to do so. What concerns you about that? Well, it's very troubling because it is federal obstruction of justice to protest outside of a federal judge's home for the purpose of influencing their decision on a case. And that's clearly what they were, what these uh, abortion activists were doing here. And that's a uh, violation of 18 U.S. Code Section 1507. So you have to ask, why did Attorney General Merrick Garland's Justice Department give these protesters amnesty here when the Justice Department went after people praying outside of uh, uh, abortion clinics? And so you have to wonder, why is there a double standard here uh, case? And that's just part of a bigger problem with the Biden Justice Department. Attorney General Merrick Garland has been pressed on his agency's failure to prosecute those protesters, and he's denied responsibility, saying that he had no influence over any decisions to arrest on the scene. He also said he's never seen the internal memo that discouraged marshals from making arrests. So it seems like a road to nowhere for those who are calling for accountability. What's your response to that? Well, it shows that Attorney General Merrick Garland is not doing his job. I mean, this is a uh, an attack on a separate branch of government at the highest level. Supreme Court justices being threatened and intimidated inside of their homes. It led to a 1 a.m. assassination attempt against Justice Kavanaugh, his wife Ashley, and their two teenage daughters. So what the heck is Merrick Garland doing here? I mean, he pretends like he's not paying attention here, but it's amazing how he can micromanage the Department of Justice when we're dealing with uh, January 6th protesters or or uh, Christians peacefully praying outside of uh, of, uh, of abortion centers. And so uh, you, you have to you have to question either he's he's not being fully truthful here or he's not doing his job. Republicans have accused Garland of directing the DOJ to partisan ends. Do you think that this should be added to the House's investigations into weaponizing the government? And what should be done to ensure that justice is blind? Well, there's no question about it. And I, I, have, I am turning from a critic of Jim Jordan on the big tech fight and his bumpy start on oversight to kind of a fan of Jim Jordan, because I think he's doing good work over the last several weeks. And I think Jim Jordan needs to issue subpoenas 
for these Justice Department officials, Attorney General Merrick Garland, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco, Associate Attorney General uh, Vanita Gupta, and uh, Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights, Kristen Clark. These are the four officials who are directly responsible for this. You might want to drag in FBI Director Chris Wray. You might want to drag in Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division, uh, Kenneth Polite, but you need to get their documents. You need to have them come in for staff depositions. You need to hold hearings because there's no excuse for what they're doing at the Biden Justice Department. When you sick the full force of the FBI and the Justice Department against Trump, Trump's top aides, Trump supporters, pro-life, Christians, but then you give amnesty to President Biden, his son Hunter, these abortion industry activists who are terrorizing Supreme Court justices in their homes. All right, that's all we have time for. Thank you so much. Mike Davis, founder and president of the Article 3 Project. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Russia's FSB security service arrested a Wall Street Journal reporter on charges of spying for Washington. A Moscow court ordered his pretrial detention until May 29th. The journalist is a 31-year-old U.S. national. He pleaded not guilty at today's closed-door hearing. The FSB claims he tried to obtain classified information about a military factory without giving details or evidence. Moscow says his activities were, quote, not related to journalism. The case marks the most serious public move against a foreign journalist in Russia since the beginning of the Ukraine war. The Wall Street Journal has denied the allegations from the FSB and sought the immediate release of the reporter. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, this may look like a road leading to the ocean, but it's California, submerged from recent flooding. An extinct lake in the state may be re-emerging. And in baseball, opening day is here with a new set of rules designed to speed up the action. NTD's Dave Martin explains how. That and more coming up. Turning to California, where footage shows a region in the state's agricultural valley submerged in floodwaters. This is Tulare County, California, showing the scale of flood devastation amid a bomb cyclone lashing the state. Footage from Wednesday shows roads and crops almost completely underwater in California's Central Valley, a major agricultural area. In recent weeks, California's extreme weather has forced thousands of residents to evacuate their homes. Last week, some 12,000 people, mostly in Tulare County, were placed under an evacuation order as high water from recent levee breaches flooded a number of communities. With the onset of rain, there may be a possible revival of the extinct Tulare Lake. It was drained in the late 19th and early 20th centuries as water from feeding rivers were used for agriculture. The Tulare Lake was once the largest freshwater lake west of the Mississippi River and has re-emerged in previous years due to downpours. And the Santa Cruz Mountains were pelted by a hailstorm Wednesday as a low-pressure system churns off the Golden State. The Weather Service issued a statement for the Santa Cruz Mountains as well as the San Francisco Peninsula, Oakland and Berkeley, warning of strong winds, rain and hail. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. 
Thank you, Steph. Baseball's opening day is here, and with the new season comes a new set of rules designed to speed up a slowing down game. The first is the introduction of a pitch clock. Pitchers now have 15 seconds to throw, 20 with runners on base, a violation results in a ball. Hitters mean well have eight seconds to get in the box and looking at the pitcher lest they get a strike. In addition, pitchers are allowed just two unsuccessful pickoff attempts per plate appearance with a third resulting in a balk which allows the runner to advance a base. In addition, the bases themselves are now slightly wider by a couple of inches in an effort to invite more stolen base attempts. Meanwhile, defensively, the infield shift has essentially been banned as a new rule says that two infielders must be on each side of second base with both feet on the infield dirt. No more loading up one side of the infield. The shift impacted left-handed hitters especially and now forces defensive players to show off more of their athleticism in the field. The results so far have been faster spring training games by nearly half an hour. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, the NBA is a pair of games on, featuring a one versus two matchup in the East as the Milwaukee Bucks, who have the conference's best record, play at Boston with just three games back with six to play. And in baseball, Aaron Judge already hit the first home run of the season this afternoon, but there's still five games on tonight, including the World Series winning Houston Astros, who open against the Chicago White Sox. And finally, for you hockey fans, big night in the NHL. 11 games on the schedule, including a pivotal rivalry battle in the East as the New York Rangers play at the New Jersey Devils, needing a win to tie them for second in the division. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. And that's all for today's news, but be sure to tune in for tonight's episode of China in Focus with Tiffany Meyer at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. She'll explore why a record number of illegal immigrants from China are crossing our southern border, right here on NTD. I'm Stephanie Cox. Until tomorrow, good night.